Modern cookery in all its branches reduced to a system of easy practice for the use of private families. In a series of practical receipts, all of which are given with the most minute exactness, by Eliza Acton, with numerous woodcut illustrations, to which is added a table of weights and measures. The whole revised and prepared for American housekeepers by Mrs. Sarah J. Hale from the second London edition, in one large duodecimo volume. The publishers beg to present a few of the testimonials of the English press in favor of this work. Aware of our own incompetency to pronounce upon the claims of this volume, to the confidence of those most interested in its contents, we submitted it to more than one professor of the art of cookery. The report made to us is more than favorable. We are sure that Miss Acton's instructions may be safely followed. Her receipts are distinguished for excellence. The dishes prepared according to Miss Acton's directions, all of which, she tells us, have been tested and approved, will give satisfaction by their delicacy and will be found economical in price as well as delicious in flavour. With such attestations to its superior worth, there is no doubt that the volume will be purchased and consulted by the domestic authorities of every family, in which good cookery combined with rigid economy is an object of interest. The Globe. Mistress Acton writes well, to the point, and like a woman of sterling sense. Her preface ought to be printed on a broadside and taught to all the young ladies at all the boarding schools and all the day schools, whether boarding or not, in England. The whole of Miss Acton's receipts, with a few trifling exceptions which are scrupulously specified, are confined to such as may be perfectly depended on from having been proved beneath our own roof and under our personal inspection. We add, moreover, that the receipts are all reasonable, and never in any instance extravagant. They do not bid us sacrifice ten pounds of excellent meat, that we may get a couple of quarts of gravy from it, nor do they deal with butter and eggs as if they cost nothing. Miss Acton's book is a good book in every way. There is right-mindedness in every page of it, as well as thorough knowledge of the subject she handles. London Medical Gazette we cannot, therefore, too warmly recommend to the notice of our junior brethren this compilation of Eliza Acton's, which will prove as useful to young missus and her cook in the kitchen as Thompson's dispensatory or conspectus to the young doctor in the library. Medico-Chirurgical Review Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Hi listeners, welcome to Season 5, Episode 2, Eliza Acton, our first bio-episode of the year. Content warning for this episode, there is a child's death that is discussed in some detail. I will add that 
there may also be a mention of um, enslavement and colonisation. As we mentioned in the last episode, we thought having spent so much time indoors for the past two years, we'd focus on domestic writers for our biographical episodes. The home played an important symbolic role, to quote Asa Briggs, for Victorians, the home was more than a house, and the objects, common or distinctive, to be found inside it. The ideas of hearth and home were connected to godliness, and the altar and the moral tone could be found in many of these domestic works. Briggs quotes one of these writers, Julia McNair Wright, who was also known as Aunt Sophronia, and was a staunch advocate of temperance, who described the worst homes as, quote, fountains of bitterness, and the best as sanctuaries. Keeping a good home was a moral issue. And I could go on a rant here about how that hasn't particularly changed in the moral posturing that's often associated with minimalism and modern domestic media, but we'll kind of leave that implicit. Of course, not all domestic literature was quite so moralistic. Some really was practical. One other thing that we should note is that the audience of these books was pretty thoroughly middle class. I'll ask a question this here, because I've like read and heard this a lot, and I think that was used differently in the US than how we use it in the UK. Yeah, basically in the US, everyone is imagined to be middle class. Um, but that, and I guess that does date sort of to the 19th century, but um, basically like... <laughs> Yeah, I could go on a rant on this, but yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Everyone's imagined to be the middle class. It's not quite true, <laughs> but <laughs> the public imaginary is like entirely middle class. I mean, we yeah, we could um, talk for hours about how the class system is a problem, especially in this country, in the UK. But um, yeah, what I mean when I say middle class is kind of like the professional classes. So people working as doctors, lawyers, etc. The books themselves were often prohibitively expensive for working-class would-be readers who, even if they did pick up a volume or two as a prize, because these were often given to especially schoolgirls as prizes, they wouldn't necessarily have the free time required to spend on carrying out the hints they found inside. Um, I did read somewhere that possibly, like, if the lady of the house owned this, her servant might read it, which is lovely. So, um, yeah, so it's not exclusively middle-class, but they would be the majority of the audience. And, of course, just like the modern books and TikTok accounts and TV series I said I would not bring up, a big focus in the literature was on acquiring the right things. Acton herself was conscious of her audience's class stations, so, quote, It is from these classes, by which she means the middle classes, that the men principally emanate whose indefatigable industry, high intelligence and active genius, we are mainly indebted for our advancement in science, in art, in literature, and in general, civilization. Although this kind of sounds dismissive of the working class, it's also a response to the popular error of imagining that, quote, what is called good cookery is adapted only to the establishments of the wealthy, and that it is beyond the reach of those who are not affluent. So she's excluding the working class, which is not ideal, but she's also explicitly excluding the, the upper class, which I think is neat. Yeah, I really, I kind of like that. Like, so from a practical standpoint, it kind of makes sense that like innovation in cooking is going to happen where you have the time and the resources and like maybe not tradition or some sort of presupposition about what good cooking is, right? And so like, obviously the upper classes have that pre-conceived uh, notion and obviously the working classes don't have the resources to innovate necessarily. Although like that is a broad generalization <laughs> in its own right. Cause I mean, like 
like what is it necessity is the mother of invention yeah necessity is the mother of invention so i'm sure there is innovation going on oh yeah um just maybe not the kind that actin is imagining here yeah and i think this will come up in the episode but it's worth noting that prior to really modern cookery eliza actin's book these kind of books were aimed at essentially professional chefs for written by professional chefs for professional chefs so she's saying no we're not doing this only for homes that can employ a private chef we're doing this mm-hmm. for everyone. Yeah. And so really her like her body of work, which we'll get into later, is about accessibility. Mm. Right? She doesn't assume that people already have the knowledge they need to do the thing. Which is like, that's why you're reading a book of instruction. But Yeah. Yeah. I think I ranted about this in the show notes later, so <laughs> it'll come up again. <laughs> so I think because maybe we should specify that because we're doing these timeline episodes, we're not going to do an around the world section for these biographies. We're just going to cut right into it. Yeah. So you should imagine, um, especially this season, that like the author we do immediately after a timeline episode was probably working primarily in that sort of chunk of time. Although like reprints and other sorts of things um, make them relevant to be on that chunk of time as well. Yeah, so uh, let's learn a little bit about Eliza Acton's early life. The 17th of April, 1799, Eliza Acton was born in battle. Um, I was confused by this because I'm not familiar (laughs) with geography in the UK, but it is a town in Sussex. Um, And her parents were John, who was a brewer, and Elizabeth. Her family moved to Ipswich when she was about a year old, and over the years she gained six sisters and four brothers. Um, So she was the eldest, born in 1799, um, followed by John, possibly a year later, who died in infancy, Uh, Anna in 1801, Catherine in 1802. I think my mind is just like reeling from the amount of birth that that Elizabeth is giving. It's like consecutive years as well, which is... Yeah. Uh, Having taken a class on human osteology, I shudder to think about her poor bones. Um, Edward in 1805, Mary Mercer in 1808, Susanna Edgar in 1810, Helen in 1811, Lucy in 1812, uh, who died in infancy, Edgar in 1813, and John Theobald Studd in 1815. I'll just take a minute to let that list sink in. (laughs) So, the middle names of some of the children represent the early 19th century version of a shout-out to family. Um, Eliza's mother had been a mercer before her marriage, um, and shout-outs also to prominent local people. Sadly, both the first John and Lucy died in infancy. Lucy's nursemaid, Mariah, gave her some laudanum because she was colicky. It was a very normal thing to do at the time, but unfortunately killed her. There was an inquest, and this was found to be, quote, misadventure, with no malice on the part of Mariah. So as we mentioned, John, her father, was a brewer, and when Eliza was born, John actually worked as a clerk at a brewing company, which was Trotman, Halliday, and Stud. Um, and the family lived in a house next to a brewery. Now, I read, one of the sources I read said that this was kind of in the countryside other than being right next to the brewery in the open air but um i spent a good deal of time when i was growing up in burton which is where most of the uk's brewing takes place 
And I cannot describe it, but there is a particular smell near breweries. Yeah. I would not want to live next door to one. Um, it's not unpleasant, <laughs> but it's just yeasty and weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this business was successful. And when one of the founding partners, Trotman, died in 1811, Eliza's father, John, became a junior partner. So Halliday and Mary Stud's husband had both made their money, essentially, enslavement. Um, I think it's just one of those things where we have to trace where this money is coming from because so often it is from, you know, buying people or um, I think it's Halliday that was involved in, like, the sugar market in the Caribbean, which is very much linked to enslavement. Yeah. It's like that classic thing, too, of what is it in um, um, um Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, yeah. where like the whole subtext is colonial sugar plantation sort of thing, mm-hmm. but it took like scholars forever to start flagging that. And then like once you start seeing it, it's everywhere because ob- like literally the wealth is built off of enslavement and colonialism at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And then people get mad at you for pointing it out, but it's mm-hmm. like, we, sh- we should talk about this. Yeah. Anyway, so this business... This business was successful. By the end of 1827, they'd expanded to run a wine business and six inns. So, yeah, as a port town, Ipswich was a garrison for troops preparing to go into battle on the continent. uh, And a large barracks had been built in 1795. And so Eliza would have been very familiar with soldiers being around pretty much constantly growing up. Um... Eleanor notes that this is a bit like the Bennett sisters in Pride and Prejudice, but it kind of reminds me of um, Persuasion. Oh, true. Too. I don't know. Like, that's the one that obvious immediately springs to mind for me, but it's also one of my favorite Austen novels. Um, although there's no record of any of her siblings or herself eloping with a soldier, um, I'm going to put an asterisk next to that. No eloping. Maybe soldier-related shenanigans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was kind of a very pointed ellipsis when I was writing that, but you can't really vocalize yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like many English towns in the early 19th century, there were growing numbers of middle-class residents leaving London for the lower cost of living outside the capital, sort of like the suburbs mm-hmm. kind of shift in the U.S. Um, and working class people who were struggling to find agricultural work and seeking industrial employment in towns and cities instead. So there's this kind of ebb and flow of people coming and going from different places for different reasons. It's bustling, mm-hmm. bustling place. Um, conditions were so difficult for the latter group, working class, agricultural uh, demographic, that at one point the local paper, the Ipswich Journal, devoted a page to the various inexpensive ingredients that could be used for making a nutritious soup with detailed directions. Mm, so this... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. That's a uh, Chekhov's, Chekhov's soup. Chekhov's soup. We need a shirt that says that now. (laughs) On the 30th of March, 1816, an advertisement appeared in the Ipswich Journal announcing that Eliza and a Miss Nicholson, of whom we know absolutely nothing more, they respectfully inform their friends and the public that on 2nd April next, they intend opening a boarding school for young ladies at the pleasant and healthy village of Claydon near Ipswich. The plan of instruction will include needlework, reading, writing, arithmetic, English grammar, geography, fancy work, flower painting, the rudiments of the French tongue, and music. 
If masters be required by the parents to attend the last accomplishments, the charges will be as usual. No entrance or other fees expected, and all extra charges sedulously avoided. So Eliza was 17 when she and her mysterious friend, Miss Nicholson, opened the school. And it's possible that she managed to keep at it for four years. Um, There's a little bit of question about this. Yeah, there seems to be some disagreement about whether this was one school the whole time or several. So one of the sources I read said that she opened another with her sister in the autumn of 1819. So starting when she was 17, Eliza and the mysterious Miss Nicholson and some of her, at least one of her siblings, uh, decided that they were going to sort of make a name for themselves in educating women. Um, And so we know that she was at it for at least four years. It seems like potentially the venture that she started with Miss Nicholson um, ended in 1819 just for her to open another school on the 11th of September Mm -hmm. of the same year. And we know that because another advertisement appeared in the Ipswich Journal and announced that, quote, the Mrs. Acton have taken a house at Great Bealings near Woodbridge, where they intend opening an establishment for a limited number of young ladies on 29th September. So not much is known about the school Eliza set up with her sister. In fact, we don't even know which or how many of her sisters were involved. Um, I think it makes sense to conclude, as others have, that Eliza was involved, both because she has this pedagogical experience and that as the older daughter, the oldest daughter, she probably lays claim to the title of Miss Acton. So I think if it were mm-hmm. just youngest daughters, it would be Miss Catherine and Miss Anna, if they were the sisters involved. In 1822, the school was relocated nearby Woodbridge, and then the records concerning the school stop in 1824, so we can kind of reasonably conclude that it might have closed down during the 1823-24 to 24 school year. Yes, so... It seems like part of this is because Eliza was ready for new adventures. Um, And in or around 1823, she makes her way to France. So I think it's important to note sort of like the background reasons for this. In today's terminology, Mm -hmm. we would probably consider Eliza chronically ill. And she was heading to France partly as an attempt to uh, improve her health, which if she's running multiple skulls... If she's running multiple schools, um, she probably needs to rejuvenate her energy levels at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I put an asterisk earlier about shenanigans with soldiers because it's also sort of rumored that she um, had a flirtation or a fling with a soldier in France. I want to heavily emphasize rumored <laughs> um, because I think mm-hmm. like yes. she was up to more important things in France. Like, uh, learning more about food. Yeah, I was eating, say eating good food. French food. <laughs> yeah, um, which as a food writer, like, we have to assume this is probably a pretty formative time, um, especially since she's, like, a new adult on her own in a new country. Like, I don't know. What mm-hmm. I would be doing is eating everywhere all the time. I don't know. Anyway. I mean, it's one of the main reasons people go to France even today. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Elizabeth Ray, a modern a scholar and editor of Acton's work, notes that, quote, although she is basically a very English cook, many of her receipts are labeled French and appear as a matter of course in the main body of her book. Um, so she's mixing French and English cuisine pretty purposefully. Um, but she also included, quote, foreign and Jewish cookery in her book in a separate section. 
I thought this was interesting to note both for like its sort of inclusivity and also for like it kind of calls attention to some of the cultural prejudices that were shaping sort of her decision. So um, I'm not going to dive into that, really. I just wanted to mark it and sort of move on. So you know from her inclusion in this series that she wrote cookbooks, but that's not how she started off with her professional writing career. In 1826, she published a collection of poetry titled very simply Poems, which is, yeah, beautifully simplistic. Mm -hmm. And this was pretty successful, especially for her first work. 328 copies had been pre-ordered, five shillings each, and the names of these subscribers were printed after the contents page. Um, Yeah, this stokes up some of the um, rumours, because I think one of the people whose name is printed is a French soldier, but there are other ways she could have known him. Mm -hmm. A second printing was ordered within a month of the book's first publication, and most of the poems are about unrequited love, which is led to a lot of that speculation about what exactly she was up to in France. And we've already mentioned that we won't really dwell on those rumours. It's extremely clear that one thing she was up to in France was food, eating, cooking, and thinking about eating and cooking, as you do. But before we talk about that, one more word on the subject of poems. Yeah, so Eliza did not sort of rest on her laurels about after this initial success. She wrote at least two more long-form poems over the course of her life. The first, uh, The Chronicles of Castle Framlingham in 1838, and the second, The Voice of the North in 1842, which was written in anticipation of Victoria and Albert's first royal tour of Scotland, even though it's doubtful whether Eliza herself ever visited Scotland. And actually... <laughs> I want to do one more word on the subject of poems, which is that, like, as a writer myself, like, some of my first forays into writing were really angsty, unrequited love poems, even though I yeah. never had a relationship, like, as a very young tween and teen. So, like, I think it's unfair to speculate based on that subject. That's, like, just really a classic subject for poetry in general. So even if you're, like, imitating the greats or, like, starting off on your own, you don't have to be drawing from like personal experience with unrequited love to write about it, you know? like Yeah, you're drawing from personal experience maybe, but maybe that experience is seeing someone in the street and being like, what would it be like if we had a relationship? Because I'm yeah. <laughs> 15 and I've never experienced that. Yeah, and she's still pretty young in 1826. Like, I don't know, it's just a classic time for angsty poetry. Like, I don't know, even older people, like, I don't know, the angst is real in poetry in this time period especially. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm like digging myself into a hole. Like I love the poetry of the period, but really it's like <laughs> it's a thing. I mean part of the whole thing of poetry is an excuse to be angsty, so Right, yeah, yeah. And like I'm all for it. Um, but I just want to call attention to that. Like it doesn't have to be because she was secretly having an affair with a French soldier. It could just be because like that's what poetry does. Yeah, I think this is kind of a perfect time to mention something that isn't actually written in the show notes, which is that there isn't a whole bunch of information about Acton, and mm -hmm. a lot of what there is has been, like, what I've included in here is stuff that can be taken either from documentary evidence or stuff written in her non-fiction writing, like her cookbooks. Um, but some of the research on her, uh, naming no names, <laughs> really relies on her writing in a way that I'm not comfortable with because I think it is 
an error to read all of a writer's writing as biographical. As Courtney mm-hmm. has just said, sometimes you imagine things. That's like the main premise of fiction mm-hmm. is that you imagine things. Um, I don't think... Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. If you thought that J.R.R. Tolkien really like went on a quest to defeat <laughs> an evil wizard, I am very sorry to... I don't know why that's the example I've run to, but... Uh, yeah, writing is not always biographical. Um, it is, in fact, imaginative. And therefore, I am not comfortable making a biographical episode about someone's fiction writing. Mm-hmm. That was a kind of... So that's kind of a disclaimer partly about why we don't have that much information. Um, but yeah. And if you're a long-time listener, you've heard us rant about this before. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a certain extent to which you can draw autobiographical parallels. That's true of all writers' work, period. Like, we're all magpies, like, stealing little moments from our lives and putting them in fiction in weird ways. That doesn't mean our fiction tells the story of our lives. It just means life imitates art and vice versa, right? Art, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It just means, like, yeah. life and art inform one another, and they have to because we're not writing in vacuums. We're all writing from like specific perspectives and embodied experiences. But like to extrapolate beyond that to say, hey, this this definitely happened to this author because it's in their fiction is uh, let's just say a a bold move. <laughs> yeah, I know we yeah we definitely have this com- discussion, especially about like goo goo taking. But I wanted to. I know people yeah. are out of order, so if you have not heard that episode yet. Um, get ready to hear this run again but it's always worth just mentioning Uh, and it happens disproportionately to women writers so there is a gendered element to this uh especially when i wonder how much we'll see it this season yeah especially when we're looking for romance (laughs) i think yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like for all we know you know um again we've mentioned this before but we are not comfortable labeling people who have not labelled themselves, but for all we know, Eliza Ratton could be asexual and aromantic and could just have only had platonic relationships. But yeah, with especially so, historical women, yeah. we're like, where is the romance? Mm-hmm. We as a culture, not Courtney and I. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> Although we're happy when we have it. Like, if it's there and documented, like, that's that's great. It's, it's like, fun, but... Uh, yeah, women are also more than romantic plots. So, so yeah, around the time her poetry was published, Eliza left France and made her way back to England. And we don't know a lot about her life for about a decade after that. In 1837, her publishers basically asked her if she's got anything besides poetry up her sleeves. And she did. Years and years of thoughts about an experience with food. So she sets out on a years-long research project. In fact, it takes her almost a decade. Cue the cooking montage. Yes. <laughs> At the end of it, she's basically invented a new kind of cookbook. This is her claim to fame, Modern Cookery for Private Families. And that's published in 1845. And it takes the absolutely revolutionary step of listing with precision and specificity not only ingredients, but times and troubleshooting techniques. So up to this point, cookbooks were really vague and chaotic. They relied a lot on individual cooks' intuition and experience. 
As we said, this is in part because many were written by professional chefs for professional chefs. The problem with that is that experienced cooks don't really need cookbooks in the way that, say, someone who's learning to cook or trying to improve or broaden their skill set might. A number of the reviews of Modern Cookery also praise her because she had actually made her recipes. Mm. That sounds like something that all cookery book writers should have been doing, but was apparently not the case. Her work with Modern Cookery, both with actually testing the recipes and giving that precision, became the standard for cookbooks moving forward. Oh, I, I want to like really flag how sincere all of our descriptors uh, of like how revolutionary this was Mm -hmm. are like it remains sort of like the gold standard first modern cookbook full stop um and like it took her 10 years to write because she was doing her research and like actually she's like america's test kitchen except (laughs) uk edition before it was a thing i don't know if there is a um a uk equivalent in the modern tv space but um i don't think there is yeah uh so that was a really wild uh (laughs) reference but but yeah, she was seriously doing her research. And for all of that work, she received 67 pounds, 11 shillings and two pence, which translates to a relative income of about 78,840 pounds in 2020 um, in the first six, six months of publication. The next year, um, her income from the book more than doubled, 162 pounds, five shillings, six pence, or 144,400 pounds. And she continued to receive a respectable wage from her share of the book's profits until 1851, when Longbin bought the copyright from her for 300 pounds. So about 375,700 pounds in today's-ish money. Um, And she continued to receive payments for her revised editions of modern cookery throughout her life. Yeah, there were a lot of numbers in there because that is kind of the solid information that we have about her. And I think it's also, you know, puts the note that she's making a pretty good income from these books. Yeah, but I still wonder, like, she worked on spec Mm -hmm. basically for 10 years. And that means, like, so if you're not familiar with writing lingo, basically she's doing all this work not knowing how it's going to pay out for 10 years. Like, I wonder how... Like, what else she had to do that whole time to support herself, we don't really know. Yeah. Um, There's a whole story that I haven't included in here. Basically, money issues seem to run in her family, especially down the paternal line. Mm -hmm. So her grandfather did this really cool thing where when he passed away, his will essentially was like, surprise, I'm in a load of debt and I want my children and Uh, widow to pay that off. Um, and it's framed Whoa. as very respectable, but it's like, dude, if you were respectable, you would have not left this to your children and widow. Um, mm-hmm. So her dad, John, was successful in the brewing business and seems to have managed to scrape out of that debt. And then at some point he becomes insolvent himself. And I don't know if this is related to Eliza being in Paris, but he does go and live in Paris for a few years because he is fleeing his debtors, which is, you know, a trope yeah. that we've seen before on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All to say, she didn't necessarily have a steady income from her family during that time. And these sums sound like a lot, but they would have been, as Courtney says, divided over those years. And, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just, like, I really vibe with Eliza as an eldest daughter of, like, a working class family. Where it's like, you you basically, um, like, your family, like, loves you and cares about your success, but they can't really, like, 
boost you on your way out, yeah. you know? Like you just gotta, you gotta do the hard work. Um, and here I am like over-identifying with the subject. So let's quickly move on. <laughs> I mean, you're not pretending that she has all the same opinions as you, so it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And at some point during this time, she moved to London. So we know that certainly for a period of time, she was living at Snowdon House on on John Street, Hampstead. And she started revising Modern mm-hmm. Cookery and working on her next book. So going back to our earlier point about domestic literature as a largely middle-class genre, Eliza consciously tried to avoid this stereotype, um, writing in modern cookery that the book was intended to contain, quote, such thoroughly explicit and minute instruction as may, we trust, be readily comprehended and carried out by any class of learners on receipts. Moreover, with a few trifling exceptions, which are scrupulously specified, are confined to such as may be perfectly depended on. So she was clear in her mission to ensure the recipes included in the book were affordable for most families. Um, Whether or not she really accomplished this for the working classes is unclear. Um, But she certainly wrote from a perspective of a family who had sort of struggled with, Mm. um, you know, financial resources. So she would have been maybe more familiar with the need to be frugal than other middle class writers. Um, working within a tight budget so i sort of think we can sort of give her the benefit of the doubt here that she had a better sense than many of like what sort of constraints might be faced by some less than affluent um families yeah she's actively trying which is you know which is nice yeah Um, Besides from like the financial sort of approach to writing the book, another really noteworthy aspect of modern cookery was that um, Eliza attempted to put in the nutritional values of the ingredients and recipes, um, and she credited other people for the recipes that she used from them when she did use other people's recipes uh, with notes on preparation from her own testing. or notes that she hadn't tested it, but had it on kind of good authority, which I saw in a couple yeah. of cases too. So she cites her sources and she does her best to test almost everything that she includes in the book. Which again, seems obvious now, but it is it was groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, basically cookbooks were like just remixed, plagiarized thing, like of the same old thing over and over and over again before her. From the sense that I get, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. And many of these recipes, where they were credited, were ascribed to well-known personalities of the time, such as the novelist Frederica Bremer um, and the opera singer Joanna Maria Jenny Lind. Mm. There are also fictional characters like Cinderella and Queen Mab. That's fascinating. I couldn't figure out whether the Queen Mab in question was Shakespeare or Shelley, but either way... Really interesting. Do you really want to eat her food, though? Like, mm. <laughs> I'm concerned. <laughs> it's, it's not what I would have chosen. Like, it's not Lady Macbeth, but... But, like, rule number one of fairy food is do not eat fairy food. Yeah. <laughs> um, so most of the receipts were conceived by the people and tested by Acton. Her original inventions could be found by the parenthetical author's receipt next to the name and she also does this i find it adorable sounds kind of patronizing but i don't know how else to put it but 
she writes next to the name of the recipe, excellent, very good, well, first and best receipt. Hmm. And she also sent presentation copies to celebrities, including Dickens. So basically, she's like a marketing genius, because like, who doesn't want to cook the food that like celebrities cook, right? Like to yeah. use the recipes that celebrities are using. Like, I think that's even still a thing now. Or like, I don't know, you you want to cook the recipes that are featured in your favorite shows, like the Bob's Burgers cookbook or something, you know? Like, Yeah, because that's exactly like the Frederica yeah. Bremer recipes yeah. is she reads this book by Bremer. It includes this, it includes this lemon souffle that the characters eat. And she writes to Bremer and she's like, how do you make this? I want to make it and include it in my yeah. book. I'm just like taking notes here, like as a, <laughs> a as a creative <laughs> person, like this is how you do marketing. Like, I don't know. It's it's really clever. Um, it's funny, too, because I also just made a, a little cookbook for um, my Indiegogo supporters for my audio drama, The Way We Haunt Now, with recipes that feed, that appear in the shows. Um, I love that. Uh, yeah so i'm vibing vibing with eliza acton right now um (laughs) let me stop vibing and carry on (laughs) um so eliza contributed a series of articles on domestic matters to the ladies companion at home and abroad um having become sort of like a, a celebrity in her own right in the cooking and domestic world and all this time she's not She's not, like, just letting modern cookery slowly go out of date. So she releases a revised edition in 1855. Um, It stays in print until almost the end of the century and is eventually reprinted in full in 1994. So it's got, like, a really long life, especially for something like food is one of those subjects that is like so trend-based that you kind of expect things to go out of fashion pretty quickly but this is like such a um like my brain always wants to use the word seminal and i hate that word um this is such a like foundational text that like everybody keeps wanting it and needing it yeah because the other thing about food right is that the techniques and the things that you have to cook them with to cook with um change so rapidly like there are some things that are ever present like whisking is never going to go out of style but like ovens have changed so much and that's not even getting into you know electric food processes and all the other yeah yeah and as like appliances as the world uh became smaller over the course of the century like also like different kinds of foods are being imported and so like People mm-hmm. will, yeah, but like um, opinions about what is good, like what are the best ingredients shift so wildly. So quickly. But she is like still like the name of the game um, for most of the 19th century. Um, so a couple of other notes on her revised edition in 1855. Longman paid, for, paid her 150 pounds for it. Um, this is the edition in which she added a new section on, quote, foreign and Jewish cookery. <laughs> and it includes the updated preface, which we've referenced a couple of times already. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK. So in that preface, the only thing we haven't really mentioned about it is that she uh, takes the trouble to explain why she's omitting some popular recipes, 
which don't really meet her dual mission of affordable and nutritious. Um, and she also complains that people are plagiarizing her recipes quite frequently. <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'd come in here with a fun, not necessarily relevant fact, partly because it was um, it was kind of <laughs> drummed into me while I was doing my PhD that plagiarism, especially pirating, are very loaded terms. And, um, you know, if they're not, it's morally wrong, but is it legally wrong when they're not, when copyright isn't effective yet? So, for example, before 1892, mm -hmm. there wasn't transatlantic copyright, so it's not pirating to reprint British work in the US. It's just not a great move. Like, it's not, it's not nice. Mm -hmm. But this is one of those little, like, dinner party facts that I love to pull out. Um, relevant for dinner parties too. But the reason that when you're reading a recipe these days and it goes into the author's life story, the reason they include that is because the actual recipes themselves are not covered by copyright law in either the UK or the US. I don't know about other places. Um, so they have to add to that kind of creative. I don't agree with um, recipes not being considered as creative, but they have to add that literary creative information. Um, cookbooks are covered by copyright, so the um, selection and arrangement and typesetting is covered by copyright, but not the recipes themselves. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty poor form from a moral, if not legal, angle, especially when it took her a decade to write this, and she put so much work into it. Um, yeah, and I'll just add an article about this from um, noted Wilkie Collins enthusiast. Paul Lewis in the show notes. Ooh. <laughs> um, in 1857, the English Bread Book was published. It didn't meet with as much success as modern cookery, um, but it is a really fascinating work. She uses it not only to give us recipes for bread, but to detail the history of bread making in general and to sort of like climb on a little soapbox and tell us all about how horrible and frequent and common the adulteration of flour and commercially made bread was so basically basically she's like the bread the like the bread industry is messed up you're better off making your own here's how to do it um it's a real mic drop of a move yeah i love that so again we don't know a ton about her life around here what we do know is that she died on the 13th of February 1859 of the cause of death that was given was premature old age which is um which was unusual at the time as much as it is now and doesn't really mm -hmm. tell us a lot I think it sort of speaks to the fact that um by contemporary standards she would be considered chronically ill um, yeah like I kind of read that into that uh very weird cause of death also like um Unplanned, but tease up another run, which is that life expectancy, as in the amount of years that you could expect to be alive to if you reach adulthood, has not changed that much. Like, she was 60, which a lot of people are like, oh, if you lived to 60 and age 59, you'd be ancient. No, she was, it was premature old age. Yeah. It's just that um, life expectancy is brought down when so few people don't live to adulthood. Yeah. So she died at that house in London that I mentioned earlier. And her death was registered by her sister Anna, who may have been living with her. 
She was buried four days later in Hampstead Parish Churchyard and left no will, but she did ask her sister to burn her letters, which is partly why we know relatively little about Mm. her. Mm. Wild. I I love a good... I... Okay, how do I say this? I don't love that the letters are burned because I'm like, no, the data, but I also love a good, like privacy yes. plan like data privacy plan mm-hmm. this is the classic i mean one. it's foolproof you burn them the unless someone's made copies of spy yeah but yeah as an art someone who uses archives a lot i hate it but someone who loves people protecting their own privacy i love it yeah she uh she knew about what she wanted people to know about her and she didn't give them the option to know more which is like I think, like, the 19th century, we really see this kind of weird rise of, like, parasocial relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, that's a whole thing. Like, people thinking that they deserve access to her personal life. Um, She was a celebrity. She would have been intimately familiar with that. So, yeah, she made a call. She stuck with it. Cannot fault her for it, even though I wish we did know more about her. (laughs) Yeah. So that is our coverage of the life of the first modern cookbook writer, Eliza Acton. Um, We'll be back next month with another Timeline episode. And in the meantime, we'll leave you with a promo for another literary podcast. Um, It's called Horse Girls. And I I think if you grew up reading the same way that I did, you you might just really love this. Yeah, it's... It's such a fun concept, and I think so many, so many kids love animals that, you know, like animal-based books are such a winner for getting kids into reading. And we, so many of us, have such fun memories of reading these kind of books. And it's lovely to hear people just talking about their like fun memories. Yeah, if you like the nostalgic sort of like throwback to things you read, I think it's very much like adult audience. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to suggest that this is for children, but definitely like. If you need like that 90s, 80s, 90s kid nostalgia, like I feel like this podcast will have you covered. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd. And me, Elena Dumbill. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review or comment on social media. It's nice to know we aren't podcasting into the void. And if you're interested in helping support our work, you can contribute via our Ko-fi page. That's ko-fi.com slash Victorian Scribblers. Or make a recurring tip via our Pinecast tip jar to get access to private content right here in your podcatcher. The links are in the show notes. We talked about um, Chekhov's soup earlier, and let's just say that my contribution to our private episodes this month is going to be soup related. I might continue my um, bread making that I started during lockdown with some bread related content. They go perfectly together. Bread and soup. An ideal meal. Hey Jenna. Hey Anonymous Alex. You're into horses, right? I am. And you loved reading horse girl books when you were younger, right? You know I did. Well, how about we host a bi-weekly podcast called Horse Girls, where we reread our favorite Horse Girls books and then start talking about them, but end up, like, wildly off-topic. 
Oh, we can bring Tim along and teach him the ways of the horse girl. And we can offer fun things to people who sign up for our Patreon, like bonus content and the chance to name a horse in our barn. Oh my god, I can't wait to get started. We can call it Horse Girls. That seems appropriate. Yeah, just don't tell Tim we named it. Why? If we tell him we couldn't think of a name, he'll try to come up with the perfect one for years, and I kind of want to hear what he comes up with. Nice. Go, announcer guy. Join us every other Wednesday for the off-track chaos that is Horse Girls. You can locate it through your old-timey dial knob radio or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. That's horsegirls.club for more information, period. I can do it. I can come up with a great name. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.